This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We've all been talking for uh, the last year about legalized uh, marijuana sales uh, in Canada as of next summer. Ontario, and of course, just uh, last week we were talking with the uh, the head of the chief uh, police chiefs association of Canada, talking about how uh, they don't think they're going to be ready for all this, and and they you know they ne- there needs to be some more intense work done on it. Uh, Ontario planning on introducing tough new penalties. Uh, this came out yesterday uh, for those who drive under the influence of drugs ahead of, of course, uh, the legalization next year. Premier Wynne said there'll be zero tolerance for those. Uh, under the age of 21, novice drivers and uh, all commercial drivers. Uh, to ta- and, of course, raising the fines on, you know, from what it looks like right across the board. To talk more on all of this, Lorraine Sommerfeld is with us, auto writer with Post Media, Motherload column in the spec, and host of the Lemonade Car Show on Rogers TV. Lorraine is with us now. Lorraine, how are you doing today? I'm good, and Lemonade is now on CH and Bloomberg. We've moved from Rogers. Look at you go. Well, let me make that correction right now. <laughs> Uh, so I saw your, uh, we tried to get you on uh, to talk about your mother load column uh, a while back, the one about the parents and the cleaning the house. Oh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. 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 We're kind of going through that now. That's a, it's a weird time, isn't it? Yeah. And I tell you, uh, parents, people my age and up, get rid of your crap. <laughs> get rid of it now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't, leave it, don't leave it to the chitlins to do, man. It, it's well, see, you know, you, you bring up a very good point there. Find it a home. Well, that's the problem. There is no home. Well, I mean, Kijiji and Craigslist, and I had an auctioneer contact me yesterday. It's like, you can try and do this. But I think what people need to understand, um, older people, it, it's not, you can't be picky. Like yeah. if the if the place that puts on school plays your little theater, you know, wants your dead husband's clothes, let them have them. I yeah. mean, just <laughs> wow, wow, <laughs> they're gonna end up in a tip. Well, let's yeah, let's it's, see true. What, it's true. You know? It's I true. I know a woman has five sets of china. She hates china. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah it's yeah. something to anyway. It's something to be concerned about. But it's another topic. Yep. We'll talk about it yep. another Sorry. time. Yep. All right. No, no, it's your fault, not mine. I know. Uh, it's the talent that's oozing out of your body, and it's coming in all directions. Oh, and I just oh. try to grab onto what I can here. Uh, what are you driving right now? Here's another one. Well, this can crack you up. I just spent a week in Italy, and I was driving a Dacia Duster. Wow, oh, a Duster. <laughs> which got a lot of awards as the best budget car. So where <laughs> in Italy were you? Northern, up in the mountains. Nice. The house up there. Oh, my God, it's spectacular. The driving there, crazy, crazy good. Yeah, yeah, yeah unbelievable. All right, so yeah. uh, obviously police chiefs said last week they're not ready. Uh, mm-hmm. Ontario introduced laws. Your thoughts on all of this? Okay, well, they've actually had um, roadside cops who can, they're considered experts by the Supreme Court. They've had these in place for years, that another cop can call one of these DROs to, um, you know, ascertain if you've been smoking drugs or snorting coke or whatever. And so th- this is not this is not news to the cops. They've already been looking for this and implementing it and felt fairly confident in their ability to do that. They can haul you in for a blood test. They started testing um, Drugalizers, they're called, which are in use in a lot of European countries all over England and stuff. They did pilot tests with those within the past year. They're accepting those. They'll be on. They'll be here too. So you have to. You lick. It's a spit test. 
Um, so actually, I'm not buying it that the cops aren't ready for this. The cops have been ready for this, and if you think you're putting anything and, and that, over on them, you're you, not. You know what? That's a question that I had for the head of the chiefs of police. It's like, well, what have you been doing up until this point? Because, yeah, you know, it's not like, you know, people are going around and, and this is an issue. So, and, and this isn't new. This no, isn't it's, new it's, at all. It's not. And if I say to a cop, is this a shakedown for more money for your budget? They'll say, of course it's not. If I say to them, um, have you not been already catching people out for being under the influence? They say, of course we have. So it's like, pick one. Because I know they're yeah. doing their job, and they've yeah. been you know, laying charges for this. And uh, you know, I, I think they're all programmed politically to say something that will get them more money or power, including, I'm, I'm reading, you know, uh, a right-wing politician is saying, "Oh, this is just this is just terrible news, and you know it's going to cost all this money." And it's like, "No, we're already doing it. We're already doing this." Yeah. And guess what? People are smoking pot anyway. Mm-hmm. And these spit tests, um, the ones in Europe anyway, they are looking for the top eight street and pharmaceutical drugs. So it's not just about pot and right. coke. Hmm. It's about yeah. you know. All yeah. these other things that we put in our well, and, and exactly, and, and you know, you look at the opioid crisis and, and things that are happening with uh, young people and chemicals. It's you know, it has to be a very broad brush, that's for sure. Well, it doesn't to get all up in arms over pot, which does, you know, it's like if your kids been smoke or drinking beer or smoking pot, and the cops know. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. There's level. I mean, and to me, the big thing in this news is the commercial drivers' angle. Mm. Going for zero tolerance for booze and pot. We've never cracked down on the commercial thing before. And I'm like, whoa, that that's like bearing the lead. That's, uh, um, again, that was my next question to ask you about the law. Speaking of Italy, we were there this summer and talking to a driver who was driving us around. And that's what he said. He said, I can't have anything if I have anything because he's a commercial driver. He so will lose be. his license. Yeah. yeah so I'm what are your thoughts? That. What are your thoughts on the new laws that are implemented? Um, the more fine thing, you know, higher fines, of course, we always do that. And I don't see anyone's going to argue with that until they get caught. And then the lawyers are going to make, you know, a killing as usual. Um, we have to get from here to there anyway. People, uh, I'm not all worried and freaked out about pot being legalized. And I really think if you take a measured view of this, we, uh, you brought up the opioid problem. We have a lot more problems on our roads than we want to you know, admit, and it's time to put some words around them and to delineate it and decide what we can, you know, function with and what we can't. We've got people taking three or four different, you know, pharmaceuticals that are mixing together yeah, and, yeah, and making yeah, them yeah. batshit nuts. You know, and, it, you bring up a very, very valid point because, again, all you have to do is listen to the news every night to know that there's a huge op- opioid crisis in, mm-hmm. uh, in, in this country. And again, uh, it reminds me of when beer went in grocery stores. Everybody thought we were going to hell in a handbasket. Nothing <laughs> happened. It's like we're sort of missing, you know, we can't see our nose for our face, so to speak. We're missing the point. And the thing is, alcohol remains a stubborn problem. And what's passing alcohol is uh, phone use, distracted use, and texting. So you can be sober, stone mm-hmm. sober. Yeah. But you're texting, and you're more dangerous than the drunk beside you, who is at least trying to drive straight. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. So, you know. So uh, come next summer, where do you think we'll be? What do you think, uh, you know, say, I, I don't know what the, what the rollout dates are for this, but say it is July 1, mm-hmm. uh, what, will, what will be the major concern be by, say, that Labor Day weekend? How will well, we have looked back on the first 60 days? I think the cop, cops are already going to have the equivalent of a breathalyzer on hand in their car if they want to use it. They're already trained to spot for, you know, lots of things. This will give them at least a roadside test because people need to be told 
um, this is what we're going to court with, not just you know someone's opinion. So we're, we're going to see, everyone's going to know that for the most part that cop car is going to have a thing that will measure what's in your body. And if not, we're taking your blood and yeah. you can't argue. And the laws have got that bulletproof back door in it, so you can't argue. And frankly, if you want to go do that, stay home mm-hmm. and get off my roads. Well, and again, we also have to tell our kids the same thing. Yeah, don't, it's don't it's it. it's not like anything different than it was for alcohol. Uh, do you th- do you think that first uh, six months there will be confusion? There will be issues with the law. There will be challenges that uh, need to be addressed. Oh, for more than six months, and again, the lawyers are going to have a field day with this one. There's going to yeah. be a lot of people paying an awful lot of money um, to argue. And it's like there's a lot of drunks that do this. They'll, they'll be charged eight or nine times. They get off every time because they can find a loophole if you pay enough. The world's yeah. not new to either of us. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, I think people should just be logical and sane. And if you, if you don't smoke dope, don't start. If you, if you do and it's legal now for some you know personal possession, I don't smoke dope. But everything is just be reasonable. Yeah. You know, If you're impaired, don't drive. If you're tired, don't drive. These are all forms of impairment. Just stay home. Are you concerned come next summer? I'm not. I'm really not. Um, We've been talking about it for a long time. And again, police forces and cops, they've been dealing with all of this, whether we want to call it that or not. And that's why they started using the term impairment Mm. years ago. They started, they say impairment, and that can be sleepy drivers, drunk drivers, dope drivers, pharmaceutically aided drivers. They've been using the term impairment trying to get us away from just saying drunk because they know impairment can come from a lot of different places. Now we're just calling it something. Lorraine Sommerfeld has been with us, auto writer with Post Media, Motherload column, the Hamilton Spec, host of the Lemonade Car Show, now on CHCH. There you go, Lorraine. Thank you. Thank you for the time, as always. Much appreciated and enjoy. And, 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 you know, if you ever need a co-pilot to go to one of those faraway places and, and play with great big expensive cars, you know where to find me. I had a McLaren in the driveway two weeks ago, Scott. <laughs> All right. You enjoy. You enjoy uh, living the life. That's for sure. Uh, that is Lorraine Sommerfeld. All right, let's bring in uh, Caroline Swinson. She is with Mad Canada. Get her take uh, on all of this. Hello, Caroline. Thank you for taking the time today. Uh, what are your thoughts on these new laws that have been unveiled? The new legislation? Well, there's some things that we have been saying need to be in place before July 1 of next year um, because we know that the incidences of drug and impaired driving, particularly cannabis, is likely to go up after July the 1st. And so uh, the legislation, certainly the provincial legislation that was brought in yesterday, which says that people driving under the influence of drugs will be treated the same way as people driving under the influence of alcohol, um, it's, uh, that needs to be in place. And there is also federal legislation that needs to be in place as well before July 21st. Uh, sorry, before July 21st. The federal government needs to bring in Bill C-46. Uh, that was my next question, is should, should, the, should the federal government be rolling out what their plan is before the provinces can sort of adjust theirs to it? Well, I think that I think with federally, we know what um, we know that what the federal government is doing is proving is you know going. They tested a roadside test that tests saliva for the presence of drugs. Um, the federal government needs to approve that test. Um, they need to set the per se levels for the level of cannabis that's allowed in people's systems, and they've got those levels. 
uh, and they need to give the police the authority to do that. And the other piece of Bill C-46 is uh, is mandatory screening and allow the police to demand a breath test or drug test. And so those are things that are, you know, are currently being debated. And, uh, you know, we are saying that they must be in place, preferably this year, but certainly before July 1. Are you confident that they will be in place by July of next year? I think so. Um, we've been working really, we've been working really hard on it, and and there is support for it. So um, we are confident that that will be in place. How does uh, Mad feel generally about this legalization? Well, legalization is not, you know, it's not, you know, we looked at we looked at the situation, and and that was obviously something that the federal government was going to go ahead with, and there was nothing that we were going to be able to do to change that. So what we have looked at is minimizing the risk, and which is why we've advocated for. Uh, the zero tolerance, uh, zero drugs in somebody's system to the you know until they pass the twenty second birthday. Same for alcohol. We we lobbied for that with young people because we know that those young people, um, the sixteen to nineteen year olds, are way overrepresented in the number of uh, fatalities on our roads. So um, we know that that's a high risk group, and so therefore. Um, that legislation needed uh, needed to be in place, and most of the legislation that is in there are things that we have recommended. Um, is uh, do you think this will be as easy? Not that it's been easy, but uh, no. <laughs> certainly uh, what we should do. Doing it is one thing, but mm-hmm. what we should do is easy. Uh, do you think this it will be as clear cut this time for marijuana as it has been for? Uh, alcohol. alcohol. Is it as easy to do? Is there more no. of a gray area? No, there is definitely more of a gray area, and that's why some things, I mean, we what we've got right now is a starting point, but I'm sure that as things go, things will need to be changed um, because we don't really know exactly how things are going to work until it's in place, and what we, what we can do right now is put as many safeguards in as we possibly can, and also uh, to do the education with, you know, education with people, education for youth. Um, we, we're developing PSAs that um, have, to, you know, that have to do with smoking marijuana and the cannabis, the dangers of doing that, the effects of that it has on people, uh, dispelling some of the myths, such as all those people out there that say they drive better when they've been smoking cannabis. Uh, these are things that we will be doing some education on. I think different levels of government will also need to do some of that education. What are your thoughts on, uh, obviously, uh, this is heaviest on, on young drivers and those that are coming up through through the system. Yeah. Um, what about uh, the laws surrounding commercial drivers, your thoughts? Well, anybody who's driving a commercial vehicle has a higher level, has a higher standard. Um, I can see that there'd be some difficulties in that with the cannabis and and I looking at the scenario with that and the people who are given prescriptions I think is going to be a difficult one to do and I'm not sure how that will be addressed but I can see that as being an issue but overall I think anybody who's driving a, a commercial vehicle that is out on there uh, putting you know putting other drivers at risk should have zero BAC for anything. Did these laws that uh, the Premier announced yesterday, did they go far enough? 
Well, I think it's. I think right now, um, you know, uh, there are people who say we should have zero tolerance for right. everything, but you know, the p- political will for that is probably not there. And so, I think that what the provincial government has done is aligning all the, you know, all those penalties. They've increased the penalty. They've increased the fines for some. They've got license suspensions. Uh, vehicle impoundment. I mean, we have pretty strict laws right now. We just have to get people to understand that and to understand that it's just absolutely not acceptable to either drink, take drugs, and then get behind the wheel of a car. Uh, do you think? Uh, what do you think life will be like one year from now? One year? Oh my goodness! Well, you know what? If it looks at, um, uh, you know, if you ask me the question this time next week, we've actually got somebody coming in. We have a mad conference this weekend, and somebody is coming in um, who is going to talk about what Washington before and after, and it's going to be really interesting uh, to see what he has to say. But, I mean, in, in reading reports and reading reports that have come out from Colorado, uh, which are varied, but, you know, generally speaking, the number of impaired uh, impaired um, incidences with, uh, you know, with the cannabis are, have gone up. And I was just reading this morning, though, there was um, a study that, uh, that the Traffic Engine Research Foundation did in 2013, and, and 44%, 44.5% of uh, drivers' fatalities, uh, there were drugs involved, 31.6% alcohol, and the most common drug is cannabis that's in that. So, so the drug situation is... is is overtaking the alcohol situation. Uh, we had a caller just to ask, um, in regard to uh, consumer vehicles, what if they're personally owned? That wouldn't change anything, would it? And if it's a commercial vehicle, it doesn't. I don't think it matters who owns it. If it's a commercial vehicle that's being driven, right. the driver's zero. Uh, how much can we learn from other jurisdictions that are a bit ahead of us on this? Well, I think we can learn by probably looking at the mistakes that they've uh, the mistakes that they've made, and uh, and we've we've looked at we've looked at that, and uh, and certainly the focus of of our conference this weekend will be you know will be looking at, at changes and uh, looking at what and this and you know Saturday will be specifically with you know with Washington what is what has happened but well you know when we're whenever we're looking at changes we do look at what's happened in other parts of the world uh when you see uh where the u.s is or other parts of the world right now uh specifically with the u.s because Mm -hmm. they've just gone in that direction is there anything that stands out what has been their biggest challenge well i think um i think the biggest the biggest challenge with drugs is is there is no easy um you know, with alcohol, you've got a roadside breath test, and and that is simpler than um, it is more it, it is more difficult with drugs too, uh, and it requires different skills with the police officer. That you know, we need you need police officers who are specifically trained with drug re- as drug recognition experts, mm-hmm. whereas with a breathalyzer, you know, a police officer can you know, make a demand for breath and immediately they've got that result. And so there is a test that that will, a saliva test, that if it's approved, they will be able to use that at roadside. But then you have to then go the next step and take a blood sample. So it's more complicated dealing with the, you know, dealing with the drugs, with dealing with drug impairment. 
but um, that's why we need the people trained, the police officers trained to deal with it, and we need those tests in place. Carolyn Swinson is with us, Mad Canada, Ontario, of course, introducing tough new penalties for those driving under the influence ahead of legalization of marijuana. Carolyn, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Thank you. Drive safe. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. U.S. President Donald Trump spoke at the United Nations today, warning that the U.S. will be forced to totally destroy North Korea. Unless Pyongyang backs down, uh, he also uh, called Kim Jong-un, uh, the leader of North Korea, uh, rocket man again, saying he was on a suicide mission. Here's a clip from the big speech. The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. All right, uh, let's bring in Michael Dunn, uh, Michael Diamond, conservative political pundit. Uh, he is with us now. Michael, your thoughts. Uh, at one point, we'd see two different Donald Trumps, uh, one that was presidential speaking at things like the UN, the other, uh, the Twitter fair. Are, 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 those lines, uh, are those lines fading there? What were your thoughts on this? So what we saw today, I think, was the presidential Donald Trump uh, in that he stuck to a script that was generally measured with parts of Donald Trump having edited the speech someone else wrote for him with Rocket Man, where I'm just glad he didn't break into a spoken word version of Elton John's uh, song Rocket Man like William Shatner <laughs> recorded many years ago, although many may think that would be an improvement. But overall, I thought this was a good speech. It was the speech he had to give. And, uh, I mean, you know, Rocket Man, um, let, let's put it this way, in 10 years from now, five years from now, everyone's going to remember this. I can't remember a thing that Barack Obama ever said at the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, so was this unpresidential or much needed accountability? Some pretty tough talk. Well, it, you know what? It, it wasn't the most presidential speech, and that's fine because the United Nations needed to hear that. They needed to hear that they're bloated, that they're ineffective, and that their 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 host and their their number one supporter or, uh, or financial backer, one of the number one financial backers and one of the founders, has had it. And I think that was an important message. And hopefully, they'll reflect upon that because it's time that there's major reform at the United Nations. What about reaction in the audience? It was interesting, uh, while the speech was going on, I got to see bits and pieces of it, uh, where they would pan to the crowd and you could see either people uh, uh, accepting of what he was saying or not very accepting at all. Well, and that's just, you know, the United Nations, because there's going to be a lot of folks there who who definitely agree with the president. And then there's going to be those the, the abusers, the leeches on the system, who and also just the social liberals who were never going to accept anything that this president said. He could have come out there and walked on water, and they'd complain he couldn't swim. So he was uh, with them. Uh, that's a, a no-police crowd. So really that he had any sort of head-nodding and agreement is uh, somewhat remarkable. How will the world, how will allies and enemies view this? You know, it, it's just repeating what what he has said uh, for a very long time, and that uh, uh, you know, organizations like the United Nations and NATO have always been in his crosshair. So from that, they're going to have to take him seriously. Now, on the the things on North Korea, that's a fairly stark contrast from the Donald Trump of the campaign, who uh, wanted less less intervention. So for those neoconservatives in the Republican Party who were never comfortable with Donald Trump, this has to be a bit of a, a, a breath of fresh air, and also for allies around the world who were worried that we'd lose America's leadership.
Will it unite the United Nations? I mean, again, <laughs> he, he basically gave them a good scolding. How will they react? You know, they should react and be reflected because what he said was, was true and important for them to hear. But I think your, your point is uh, well taken that this will, you know, it, for an organization like the United Nations, for an organization that's comprised of uh, dictators and uh, awful regimes, uh, nothing can galvanize them more than Donald Trump. Um. As you have said, uh, either you like him, you like him, you hate him, you hate him, you're a part of his base or you're not. Uh, most can't get past Trump's persona. Uh, if it was another leader giving this same speech, maybe minus the Rocket Man editorials, um, how would we view this? Well, you know, it, it's funny because George W. Bush would have given a similar speech. He, he appointed John Bolton to the United Nations, one of the most uh, anti-United Nations uh public figures in the United States, and he made him ambassador there. Uh, so George W. Bush wasn't immune to the tough talk on the United Nations, and he also wasn't uh, immune to uh, tough talk on uh, on countries like North Korea, who he added in his uh, State of the Union addresses to the axis of evil. So he wasn't uh, he wasn't uh, that different. You wouldn't call him Rocket Man, but axis of evil is pretty hard hitting. Uh, but so it was a slightly more presidential tone than what we got with Trump, but a similar message. And George W. Bush was mocked by the elites of the United Nations and around the world. So I think it's really what what it comes down to is when there's a Democrat in the White House, the rest of the world loves the American president just like they love our selfie prime minister. When there's a Republican, it doesn't matter what they say, who they are. They will be mocked. That being said, will people look back at this time and say Trump, uh, as ironic as it is, may be what America needs right now? You know, I, I actually think so. And he, he quoted uh, in this speech, he quoted two presidents who I greatly admire. One was Harry Truman, the other was John Adams. John Adams, by the way, there's an inscription in the White House that says, may none but uh, honest men uh, inhabit this house. So I think he'd be turning over with some of the uh, mental gymnastics Donald Trump plays in uh, his speaking. But, uh, but Harry Truman's a good example of someone who at the time was looked upon as someone who was unworthy for the office, unfit to lead the world in a uh, dangerous time. And today he's looked back upon as one of the greatest president who actually, through the Marshall Plan, uh, helped save the world. So I think, you know, Donald Trump's tough talk at the United Nations hopefully will impact some change. And in 50 years from now, we'll reflect upon this, hopefully, that uh, he was the man who kick-started that change and helped save an institution that has a role to play in the world, but has lost its mission. Republicans must be just, you know, biting their lip, hoping, hoping he would just stop the lunacy and continue on this sort of path without the editorial. Uh, uh, if that ju- if that happened, they'd be on their way, wouldn't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for especially you have the Republicans like John McCain and Lindsey Graham, uh, who really lead the neoconservative uh, faction of the party, the National Conservative Republicans, as some of them call themselves, and and they've been waiting for Donald Trump to start talking like this for a very long time, but. In that message, that important message to North Korea, it just gets it muddied up with the use of Rocket Man, which just is bizarre. So let's analyze that. What the fact is, as soon as you take that platform, as soon as you take that audience, and you start using names, whether it's Rocket Man, and, and I'm sure many of them were smirking underneath their astonishment as well. Um, what does that do to the level of conversation once you start using names like that? Once you, you know, even to say that they're on a suicide mission or or whatever, that's one thing. But to call someone a name, what does? How does that? How does that take the edge or add the edge to to the speech? Oh. 
even the fire and fury from a few weeks ago was a more measured language uh, and made more 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 sense and was more statesmanlike than Rockingham. So it definitely reduces the uh, level of dialogue at the United Nations. But that said, a lot more Americans are going to remember the speech. A lot more Americans are going to tune in to to hear what the president said today, and that's not a bad thing. Can he win over that group the way he has won over his base? I mean, you know, when he starts using words like Rocket Man, obviously he's taking something out of his own personal playbook there. Uh, How will that fly on the world stage? We know how it flies in North America. No, it won't. It won't fly on the world stage. It won't make him any friends with the United Nations. But what it will do is it's going to remind his base, uh, those folks who loved him, you know, as he said, he could go shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they'd still vote for him. Uh, It's going to remind them of the character that they fell in love with um, probably well before he entered politics for many of them. And then for the Republican base, for the uh, neoconservatives, the national security Republicans, it's going to demonstrate to them that the president, the leader of their party, is more of an ally to their priorities, to their main concerns, than he lets on and than they previously thought. So he's going to make some friends in the Republican Party, and that matters a lot more. No U.S. president, who, if, if an American president heads in to office with the goal of having better relations with the United Nations and winning a Nobel Peace Prize like Donald Trump's predecessor, that's a recipe for disaster. Uh, so is what he's doing, I mean, obviously, and he stressed this in his speech, that, you know, it's like you guys got to take care of your countries, take care of your citizens, and then the world will take care of itself. Um, so is this... His scenario, although appealing to his base, is this helping things on the world stage? Is this helping the situation, for example, in North Korea? Well, it should because the rest of the world needs to uh, needs to step up uh, to, to North Korea as well. You know, South Korea and uh, China, especially China, need to play a leadership role in this. It can't just be the United States, and that's his point. That the rest of the world needs to, and that he's also he was elected for the advancement of America to make America uh, great again, as he said, not to make the United States great, not make the United Nations great. You know, that's his job. That's why he won. That's why he beat. 16 highly skilled politicians in the Republican nomination. That's why he beat the inevitable two-time president of the United States, Hillary Rodden Clinton. And uh, so he can't forget that, and he needs to let them know that he's not going to forget that. The rest of the world needs to, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a president who wants to make America great again. Uh, And the rest of the world's leadership should realize that there's nothing wrong with them standing up for their country's interests. Well, as we've said many times, Michael, it's it's, it's very... it's usually just him shooting himself in the foot. That's the problems that have been, you know, uh, that have been started in the Donald Trump White House. Uh, Michael Diamond has been with us, conservative political pundit. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Take care. All right, you too. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant. She is with us now. Hello, Alyssa. How are you today? I'm very fine. I know Michael Diamond. Do you? Well, man, I should have put you all on together. Do you want me to put him back on? No, I'll tweet him when I'm done. <laughs> there you go. So what are your thoughts on this speech? You know, I, and I was going to talk about this with Michael, but I just didn't get to it. Um, I listened to part of it online, and then, and then I watched part of it. And while I was listening to it, it seemed different than when I was watching it. Uh, how much is it that people got to get past the persona of what, the, uh, of the you know the personality that this guy is, the jerk that he can be, area that he is? You take your pick, uh, and and the presidential Donald Trump. What are your thoughts on this? Well, let me say this: uh, in every political pol- politician's life, there is a crisis, and that crisis will either make you or break you, and in some cases, it can define you. 
So when you look at 9-11, that is what defined Rudy Giuliani's um, reign over New York. That sort of uh, elevated him into a different stratosphere as far as what a politician is. Um, when oh, uh, President uh, Obama, when they captured Osama bin Laden, that elevated him um, into a certain stratosphere. So when you know, Trump is now in this environment, which is very serious, which is the U.N., and we all have sort of our opinions on how effective the U.N. really is. You know, when I watched him, to your point, and I watched him very carefully, you know, he really used it as a presidential pulpit. There is no doubt. With the one time where he called uh, Kim Jong-un the rocket man, which I must say I kind of find a little funny, but um, and you know so, most were smirking, but you know again is that is that the form? Yeah, but for it that? kind of suits the, the guy, right? You yeah, know, it does so yeah. Kim Jong Un the Rocket Man is kind of like, well, yeah. Um, I noticed that you know he really used it as a presidential pulpit. He really did not veer off his narrative. He was there to give a uh, some very specific points, and he did. And I think, you know, to your idea of just listening to his voice versus watching him, you do get another impression. Like, did you feel that he sounded almost like, a you know, uh, a regular type of uh, presidential, um, you know, he, yep. he, exactly. did you not feel that? Absolutely. I, I watched the first part. I listened to the second part. And I thought, wow, this sounds pretty good. But when I'm watching, I'm going, oh, man, <laughs> you know, because he's acting like Donald. And whether what he the, the drag is is whether Donald says something right or wrong, people go in with a perceived opinion either way, and he's got to get rid of that to be effective. And that's the way he's led the first part of his of his tenure. Uh, now, will that change? Will we see see less of the 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 goofiness and and more of just a stern talking president? You know, I guess remains. You know, uh, we'll wait to, to to find out in all of that. But uh, you know, as I'm sitting listening to it, I'm thinking he's saying things about the UN that needs to be said. Well, I agree, and I think that this is why people voted him in. Even those who are those who are not necessarily his base, they want really wanted a tough talking president when it came to issues like North Korea. And this is what they got. So when you look at that, when you listen to, you know, him and you listen to his narrative, and you listen to his tone of voice, this is more what people thought they were going to get across the board. Yeah. So when you think that when you say, oh, is this going to get rid of the goofiness and the, and the silly tweets? No, uh, absolutely not. I mean, you know, what you see is what you're going to get for the next four years. But when you're, when you're given an opportunity, and I hate to use this as an opportunity, but it is, you know, I am sure from a communications point of view, his staff gathered around him and said, okay, this can, the way you handle this, mm -hmm. can literally wipe away all your transgressions and all the other, you know, things that had, and issues that have cropped up that uh, continue to, um, to bog you down, this can wipe away all of that. Now, that isn't necessarily true, but I'm sure that's what they told him. And I am speculating here. But, you know, he, you know, having been told that and having probably been told that the eyes of the world are on you, mm -hmm. and they are. Yep. And if there's something that Trump loves, it's when he has all the attention. And he knows that this UN speech is going to give him all the attention he has ever wanted. So, unpresidential or much-needed much accountability? Much-needed accountability. I don't think he was unpresidential in this case. 
Not at all. I mean, you know, when we have to maybe wipe North Korea off the map and, you know, a lot of these really hard charged words that he was using and nothing there was no mincing of words there was no diplomatic speak there was no pussyfooting around the fact but this is what he said and i mean the only time when he sort of made a bit of a you know a veiled uh nuance was when you know when it's unconscionable that there are countries oh i'm talking about you china by the way mm. uh that continue to trade and do business with north korea and 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 you knew i mean uh, listen you know p- people probably had a the cat you know all the networks probably had a copy of this speech because as you watched it you know he would talk about the north koreans they would pan to the one guy yeah. that was still in the audience when yeah. he was talking about the chinese they would pan over to the chinese delegation so really there was a lot of like drama yeah. around this mm-hmm. and it was a 41 minute speech so there was no droning on and on it was it was well written and it was very succinct and we are left not with a shadow of a doubt of where he stands on these issues how will the world view this well, I don't know about the world, but I know about me. <laughs> and um, I, you know, it's tough talk. I think that, you know, what you said that the UN does, what was said about the UN is something that is often needed to be said, but everybody's been afraid to say it. Although I will say that Nikki Haley does talk tough mm-hmm. about what goes on at the UN. Like she's very tough talking about that. And I think it's frightening. But it's and different. It's he, different when the, the than when the chief does it. When the main guy. Well, one hundred percent. But yeah. the fact that she has never veered from their message on mm-hmm. how they view the UN, and then for Trump to come in and basically say, "Okay, we are still aligned on this narrative," and now that we're talking about North Korea, there's no way I'm veering from it at all. Well, and you bring up a valid point because with North Korea, with terrorism, uh, you know, the UN is needed theoretically in the in the way it was started more now than it has ever has been. And you know, I I think he pushed that with saying, you know, you guys got to start taking care of your own people, and then if we have strong countries, we can take care of the world. Uh, it 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 seemed to be a, a very interesting message that I wonder if it was another leader delivering it if we would look at it differently. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it would depend on what leader. I mean, there are, there are allies. Or even person, not a leader. Yeah, yeah, there are allies who think the same of, of North Korea. And I think that if it was going to be done differently, I don't think that there would have been really hard-charged words, you know, wipe off the mat, something drastic will need to be done in order to stop this tyrant. So um, would they have used all of those words? Maybe not. Would they have sort of like had a lot of diplo speak around it that, you know, we will have to take action? It probably would have stopped there, Scott. Really, it would have. But, you know, Trump will take it to that extreme. You know, a lot of people say that when Trump talks, he says what you're thinking. Hmm. Well, there's a lot that he says that I don't think at all. But I think in this case, um, he probably garnered a lot of fans. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. And thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, I remember being a kid and going into cities where they had a Toys R Us, and it was almost like a destination. I got to go see this. And because uh, it was a department store that was dedicated just to toys. Whether you were even going to buy or not, you just go in to ch- check it out. 
and, and just look at the magnitude of the whole thing. Well, Toys R Us has declared bankruptcy in the United States and have yet to file here in Canada. Uh, how do you explain this? Is it a typical uh, story of, on, uh, of uh, retail succumbing to online business? Is that, is technology the issue here? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is on the line now. Ian, thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. I thought this was a bulletproof brand. Uh, what happened here? Um, it's, uh, there's really two separate reasons, and you already touched on the first one. Uh, this industry, and I'm talking retailing, not just children's toys, uh, retailing writ large um, is becoming more and more uh, competitive, more and more vicious, and uh, the leanest and the meanest and the most efficient companies are going to survive. And, of course, I'm talking about uh, Walmart and I'm talking about Amazon. Mm. These two com- uh, companies, uh, one in the, in the bricks and mortar space, as we know, one, one in the online space, are both uh, just, uh, they're formidably efficient. And, and what happened was uh, Toys R Us, uh, has been beaten out uh, uh, the, by the incredible efficiency of these two companies. Now, it's not just these two companies. It's discounters. It's online companies writ large. But these are the two most formidable competitors. And, and I, from our, all my uh, analysis of the, what's been written about Toys R Us, and this has been coming for quite some time, by the way. This didn't happen yesterday morning. This has been going on for several years. They were not sort of la- uh, like Sears. They were you know what, Ian? I was just thinking that as you're describing this to me. Yeah. My next question is, hey, is this sounds very similar to a Sears. It is. It is. And uh, where they did not, there were changes coming down. There were lots of warnings, lots of red flags. This wasn't something where, you know, they woke up one morning and everything was hunky-dory and everything was fine and they were doing well and then, kaboom, all of a sudden they, they, they failed. Not so. They've been uh, deteriorating, declining for years. And uh, as Walmart and uh, Amazon, bit by bit, year by year, took more and more sales away from them. There is a second reason. I won't hide this at all at all. They were bought out by one of those, um, uh, let's call it a hedge fund, you know, a leverage buyout about five or six years ago. And they loaded up the company with a lot of debt to buy it. And uh, so the... uh, the whole idea was that they were then going to uh, later uh, take it uh, t- uh, take it public, um, which is often what happens when a, one of these companies buys out a company. They will, you know, they'll prune uh, expenses and so forth, and then they will take it uh, to the market for a new IPO. The problem was is that they never turned the company around. It wasn't doing well when they were bought out by one of these private equity funds. It was uh, Bain Capital and and uh, KKR, by the way. Uh, these are famous private equity firms in the states that buy underperforming companies, and they go in and they. Some people would say they slash and burn. Others would say they make the company more efficient. They turn it around and then they take it back to an IPO, which means they take it back to the market to to do a, a public listing on the stock exchange. The problem was they never did take it back to the market because they never did. Uh, were not able to prune and and turn it around and do the strategic surgery necessary to make it more competitive but they still now had this enormous debt of five billion dollars so not only were they heavily heavily in debt heavily leveraged but they were facing not stagnant competition but increasingly aggressive increasingly dynamic competition 
from these two formidable companies, uh, which is Walmart and uh, and Amazon. And so I thought for quite some time, I mean for several years, it was only a question of time uh, before Toys R Us uh, uh, went bankrupt. So is the toy industry just one of those product lines that lends it to lends itself to online shopping? A toy is a toy is a toy. Once you know what you want, you yeah. can find it anywhere quickly online. You are absolutely correct. There are. I am not one of these people that say every retail business is vulnerable. I don't believe that. I have long argued that um, uh, the grocery shopping is different. Um, the way I like to put it is, uh, I said this to my students. I was teaching in Warsaw, Poland last week, executive MBA, and we were talking about this very issue of online versus bricks and mortar. And I said, you know, grocery retailing is very different because you want to go in, and I said, you want to squeeze the oranges. Now, I know we're not supposed to touch the food, yeah. you know, hygiene and all that, but you know what I mean. We yeah. want to go in and touch the stuff. We want to squeeze the toilet paper, squeeze the Charmin, you know, yeah, as yeah. a famous ad from the 1960s. Same with clothing. Yeah, yeah. And I argue that clothing, unless it's sort of cheap and standardized, and I mean by that, you know, six pair of socks for sure. uh, five ninety nine, that sort of thing is very highly standardized. That sort of thing lends itself to going online. But when you get into the higher end, you know, a suit, uh, a specific suit where there's a lot of customization involved, uh, and of course food, I think, I'm not saying no, none of that will go online. I'm saying it's going to be relatively impervious to online. I don't, and in fact, when you look at the sales, the online sales data over the last five, six years, those are the two areas that are not, they're lagging dramatically compared to consumer electronics or toys where you have a standardized product. Once you know it's a can, I bought my Canon 5 online. Once you know the name of the product, the brand of the product, and sometimes the the SKU or the model number of the product, it's just ridiculously easy to do comparison shopping on the web. The same with toys. Once you know the brand name and the model number, you can compare with the flick of a mouse and at the speed of light, because computers function at the speed of light, and get comparative data uh, anywhere. And so those industries that lend themselves to almost instantaneous uh, comparison shopping are the most vulnerable to hyper-competition. Of course, airline tickets are another one. Were toys, of, uh, were toys are us ahead of this curve when it came to online retailing? Was it like Sears? Were they something, was this something they weren't dabbling in, something That's they were late to the game? You just hit it right on the head. They were very late to the game. And uh, they just didn't, uh, they didn't take it as a serious threat. And uh, I think they thought that, uh, it seems, that they thought that their brand was so strong because they've been around for such a long time with the baby boom generation. We grew up, our uh, boomers grew up with Toys R Us. And it seems that they thought that they were not, they were not going to be uh, vulnerable to, to uh, Walmart and, uh, and, uh, and Amazon. And I keep using these terms, by the way, simultaneously. Uh, I think we're seeing the clash of the titans, uh, literally, that goes, harks back to the 70s and 80s when, Pepsi, when uh, Harvard Business School was publishing endless case studies called the Cola Wars, Pepsi-Cola versus Coca-Cola. These are the new Cola Wars, and that is uh, Amazon versus uh, 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 Amazon versus Walmart, and they are both, let's be very, very clear, they're both extraordinary competitors. So anybody who suggests that Walmart is going to succumb to, to, uh, to Amazon and, and, have their, and, and have their lunch eaten, if I can use that phrase, I think are dreaming. That isn't to say that Walmart doesn't have some vulnerabilities. They do. But these two companies, on the bricks-and-mortar side and the online side, are just, they're just killing everybody else. And Toys R Us is just the latest example.
Uh, is Walmart's online presence where it should be? Uh, they say, in fact, I've read the, um, the annual report where they actually gave their management analysis of their own strategy, and they acknowledge that they have been uh, slow to really dominate in that, uh, to, to you know, get ahead in that space, but they are in typical Walmart fashion. They have realized that they are behind the curve, and they are putting all kinds of resources into it. They just bought a, a company to, that were there to integrate in that, 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 to the Walmart that's going to look after. They're going to use as their loggerhead for, um, uh, uh, for uh, online shopping. And I would, and of course, they have the thing, the advantage of ship to store, right? So you can ship the, and pick it up at the store, and they can match pretty closely, match the, wall, the uh, Amazon delivery. So my answer to you is that they were behind the game before, but they're fast picking up. And so this is, we're going to see this over the next two, three, five, ten years, this unbelievable battle between Walmart and Amazon. And there's going to be a lot of roadkill. And Toys R Us is just the latest uh, roadkill uh, from this tight, uh, titanic uh, uh, battle that's going on. Uh, Toys R Us, a worldwide company, how come this just seems to be a North American issue, or is it spreading? Uh, my understanding is that the, the stores outside of North America, and I mean by that Canada and the U.S., of course, are not included in the bankruptcy, and I'm guessing it's because I do not know. I'll disclose that right away. I couldn't find that information, but I'm guessing that they are franchises abroad, or they're set up under a completely different ownership structure that wasn't part of the takeover um, by Bain Capital uh, back uh, when, they were, when they were bought out. So they've got, they've got the same brand name, but there's a different ownership structure internationally that separates them from Canada and the U.S. Uh, their stores always seem to be destinations. I mean, there's one in Times Square in New York City, and, and people would just come in to see these things. Yes. Uh, is that old-time retailing? Is that old-time thinking? Um, let me put it this way. Um, I don't think that retailers need to roll over and play dead. Um, I'm actually giving a presentation. I was invited by some people at the city of Ottawa to do a presentation in January on the very, this very question of how can retailers, bricks and mortar, respond to the online threat. And, and it is formidable, let's be very clear. But I'm not suggesting that all the retail stores are going to die and that all the shopping malls in North America are closed. That's not going to happen. There is a restructuring going on, let's be clear. And in the next three, four, five years, we're going to see more stores close and some shopping malls close. But they're not all going to close. Uh, there are going to, some will survive, many will survive, but there's going to be a rebalancing of the sales, uh, percentage of sales online versus in, in store. And, and people still like the, in, I mean, I've been out to the shopping center just last weekend, and people still like the in-store experience. I was walking in the, the Rito Center, which is sort of the equivalent of the Eaton Center in Toronto, downtown Ottawa, and it was a sunny, beautiful day when everybody should be out at the beach, and the shopping mall was filled with people walking around, young people, middle-aged people. People like the social experience of going to these stores, but they've got to be given a reason to go. And uh, so they're going to, this is going to force uh, bricks-and-mortar retailers to become more innovative, to make it more of, as you just put it, an experience uh, to, to go there. And so, again, I'm not, I, I think that there is going to be a rebound. There is a rebalancing going on. But I'm not one of these people who say that the shopping centers of North America are doomed and they're all going to die and they're all going to close. I don't believe that's going to happen. There is a restructuring going on, though, and the weaker, the weaker firms are going to get killed. They're going to, you know, the, you know, it's the, the, the Serengeti of Africa, you know, the lions mm. uh, <laughs> eat the weaker uh, wildebeest. And uh, so the weaker wildebeest 
in the world of retailing in North America are going to succumb, and the stronger and uh, and the more innovative firms are going to survive. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. All right, let's bring in uh, someone at the opposite of Toys R Us. Uh, this is Michael Heddle. He is the owner of Bounty Hunter Toys and with us now. Hello, Michael. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. No problem. Thanks for having me. Tell everybody where your store is. Uh, we're at 118 Ottawa Street North in, uh, in the Ottawa Street Shopping District. And how long have you been in business? Uh, I've been doing this about 25 years now. Store's been at this location about five. So, how do you? Uh, what is your reaction to something like Toys R Us uh, going uh, filing, uh, filing for bankruptcy? And how, as a small uh, mom and pop type of store, have you managed to stay in business? Uh, well, for one thing, we don't really carry a lot of brand new toys. We do carry some new toys, but we're very specific in what we carry. Uh, whereas Toys R Us, it, it seems to me when I go into Toys R Us that they try to carry every single toy line they can get their hands on to, to cater to everybody that walks in the door. And uh, like uh, like you were saying before, with the online sales, Amazon, everything else, you don't need to cater to every single person anymore. It's, it's, uh, it's a weird thing for business owners to say, but I know my limits, and there's certain things that we'll carry and certain things that we won't now. So, uh, and Toys R Us always sort of the department store of toys, and we've seen a lot of department stores struggle. Are you thinking it's for the same reasons, like you said, just trying to be too much to too many? Um, I think so. Um, there, there's always the, like a lot of people are saying today, the Walmart and Amazon factor as well. Um, you know, like, well, for example, there's a Walmart down the street from me, and shortly after we moved the store here, it opened up, and I, was, I panicked. I was like, oh, great, I'm done. Yeah. Um, but no, I wasn't. My sales have actually uh, quadrupled in, in like, the world of wrestling and Star Wars because they're, they're always selling out because they're so cheap. So what is it uh, that they're carrying that you're not vice versa? What can you offer that they can or they're not interested in? Well, one thing I've noticed with major chains like Toys R Us is that uh, back in the days, the 80s and 90s, they would carry almost any toy line. Yeah. Now it seems there has to be a movie to support it. It has to be a TV show to support it. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, when the newest Captain America movie comes out, you'll find nothing about Captain America toys flooding the aisles in there. Or the new Transformer movie comes out, that's all you'll find is Transformer toys there. Um, whereas with us, we try to avoid, not, avoid carrying the brand new toys. Because, I mean, like I said, Walmart's down the street. We can't compete with that. Yeah. So we have to try, uh, try a different spin on things. What about devices battling toys? I mean, let's say devices are toys. Um, but but, but how, do you, how, how do you balance between technology and, and what a basic toy store used to be? You mean when you mean uh, technology stuff, you mean like uh, the video game system? Sure. Versus toys? Um, it's a huge, huge thing. I've been saying for years that uh, kids' toys used to go, you know, from, from the day you're born till probably until you're about 12 years old. Now it's half of that. By the time you're six or seven, uh, they've already got an iPad or they got a PlayStation or, you know what I mean, they're, yeah. they're in the digital age now. Um, so I think it has a lot to do with, uh, one, one parents, obviously, but I think it has a lot to do with keeping the imagination with them as well, keeping mm-hmm. them interested in the toys, you know. So what are people interested in? What, uh, what do they look for in your store? Uh, well, our store's a little bit unique, like I said. So, so we, we've got a reputation for being one of the only stores, well, the only store in Hamilton that caters to wrestling toys, for example. So mm. wrestling's a huge part of our business. Yeah. But like I said, we don't carry anything brand new. So usually when people are looking for a toy that you can't get anymore, we're usually going to have it or we'll be able to get it. Is that the way you see the toy industry going, become more and more types of shops like yours and, and, and the sort of Toys R Us uh, gone the way of the dodo bird? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, Toys R Us, to use the one here in Hamilton, for example, when it first opened, it was, it was literally 16 rows of toys, mm-hmm. and like one row of bikes. Now, for the action figure genre, which is our main interest, I think they've got three rows of that. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, they still got like the Barbies and, and, and all that kind of stuff too. But I, th- I think t- people are people are less impatient. They don't want to waste their time looking in the store. Oh, they don't have it. I'll just order it online kind of mentality. And toys do, the toy industry really does lend itself to online shopping, doesn't it? Once it, you know what does. you want. It does. It, it, the actual toy companies themselves now will uh, make their own exclusives. Like Hasbro, for example. They, they make uh, G.I. Joe and Star Wars toys. They'll have their own exclusives available only on Hasbro.com. So you can't even get that at Toys R Us, or you can't get it here. Or mm. if you do get it here, you know that it came from Hasbro.com originally. Interesting. So where do you see this five, ten years from now? Um, a lot more online sales. I mean, anyone can open up a website nowadays. Anyone can open up an eBay or an Amazon account. Um, it, it's you know, it's a shame Toys R Us is going. It's one of those childhood stores. That, again, destination store. I, I would, I would take a bus, go to Limeridge Mall. Yep. The Toys R Us have no money, but I just wanted to see what they had. Sure, yeah. you know, which is what our store is a lot like too. People come here from from outside of town, and like one, they want to experience Auto Street, but two, they want to experience our store and see the stuff that they had when they were a kid. So I see it being the same type of thing. You see a lot more specialty type stores and online specialty shops as well. Uh, Michael, website you want to throw out there? Um, our website's actually being worked on, so I'll pass on that. But I will give a plug for Ottawa Street sidewalk sale this weekend, if that's okay. All right, go for it. <laughs> All right, uh, Mike Heddle has been with us, owner of Bounty Hunter Toys on Ottawa Street, and of course a big sidewalk sale going on this weekend. Get out and see what uh, the new Ottawa Street is all about. Thank you, Michael. Michael, do you want to weigh in on that real quick? What about your street? Give us 30 seconds on it. Our street is fantastic. It has changed so much in the last 5 to 10 years. You really need to check it out. All right, Michael Heddle, owner of uh, Bounty Hunter Toys. Thank you, Michael. Good luck. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.